in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1, is the fleshing out in concrete terms of what it means to live in, to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So let's read it. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In this passage, Paul is showing us how the lordship of Jesus Christ extends to all of life, including our relationships. And he is saying that our submission to the Lord Jesus Christ transforms our relationships and enables us to seek the flourishing of our spouse, our children, our friends, our co-workers. And his teaching, the teaching of Paul, is both transformative and subversive. By addressing each household member, he is affirming the equal dignity and worth of each household member. And in that day, the man was the head of the household, and the household code was designed for his comfort and convenience. Paul reorients the household code around the lordship of Christ. And in so doing, he subverts the selfishness inherent in the code and our own contemporary desire for autonomy and self-seeking. He begins by addressing wives. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 18. Now, this passage does not imply that women are inferior Neither is Paul demanding that wives obey their husbands blindly. Douglas Moo would properly describe submission as follows, a voluntary willingness to recognize and put oneself under the leadership of another. Notice the language of voluntary willingness. To submit is to recognize a relationship of order established by God. But submission to any human is always conditioned by the ultimate submission that each believer owes to God. In any hierarchy we can imagine, God stands at the top of the chart. And I would remind you of a quote from Kathy Keller, the wife of Tim Keller, who just went to glory, from her study of Ephesians. The relationship of the father and the son is a pattern for the relationship of husband to wife. 
the son submits to the father's headship with free, voluntary, and joyful eagerness, not out of coercion or inferiority. The father's headship is acknowledged in reciprocal delight, respect, and love. There is no inequality of ability or dignity. We are differently gendered to reflect this life within the Trinity. Male and female are invited to mirror and reflect the dance of the Trinity, loving, self-sacrificing authority and loving, courageous submission. The son takes a subordinate role, and in that movement, he shows not his weakness, but his greatness. And a wife then, in a marriage relationship, would live out the lordship of Christ by following his example of submission to the Father. And Paul describes it as fitting in the Lord because God has designed marriage to reflect the relationship between Christ and the church, where the church submits to Christ and Christ loves his church sacrificially. And that is why he moves on in verse 19 to challenge the husband to live out of the lordship of Christ by loving his wife. That in itself was radical because during those days, marriages were not out of, were not love matches. They were often arranged marriages for the welfare of both families. If the husband and wife happen to like each other, well, great. But Paul says, husband, don't merely tolerate your wife. Don't merely accept your wife. Love your wife. And he's not just talking about romantic or sexual love, although husbands, we are responsible to keep pursuing our wives. And remember, it's pursuing to woo, not to harass. The standard and model of our love is Christ's self-giving love for his church. And so, husbands, we need to sacrifice ourselves to seek the best interests of our wives. And instead of harping on their flaws and shortcomings, we should thank God for giving them to us. That's why Paul says, and do not be harsh with them. Um, a, a good friend of mine, Ken Davis, would say, this is, what, this is how I understand grace. Every morning I see my wife, and she hasn't left, even though she had the chance to go <laughs> while I was sleeping. <laughs> you know, that is what our wives extend to us, isn't it? More importantly, that is what God extends to us. He extends to us gentleness, compassion, and kindness. And therefore, as recipients of that grace, compassion, gentleness, and kindness from God, we treat our wives with gentleness, compassion, and kindness. And by the same token, fathers and mothers are to treat their children the way God, our Father, treats us. That's in verse 21. And this command, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged, is, again, a radical command in that context because children were considered property of the father. But Paul subverts that relationship by giving the children equal worth. First of all, by instructing them directly, saying, children, obey your parents in everything. 
for this pleases the Lord. And by instructing the fathers not to provoke their children. So our challenge as parents is to train them in God's ways, as Michael prayed. We, dis we dis discipline our children firmly out of a loving relationship with them. We don't try to control or manipulate them. Instead, we point them to Christ and we guide them to be good stewards of their lives. And children, well, obey your parents in everything for this pleases the Lord. Notice that the motivation isn't personal gain. Neither is it so that you don't get sent to your room without dinner. It's not about avoiding punishment. You obey your parents to please the Lord out of gratitude for his gracious salvation. So that even in your obedience, children, it is oriented towards Christ the Lord. And at the heart of Paul's instruction to the family is the privilege of demonstrating the peace of Christ by living out the harmony of new creation life with one another. That's what Michael was praying about earlier. In living out that peace, that harmonious relationship between father, son, daughter, wife, husband, we are showing the fruit of the gospel and the transforming grace of God. After all, as David Garland would put it, nothing is more difficult than living in a family where the virtues of compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and professions of love are tested daily. Just think back a couple of years ago when we were all locked down in our homes and, and having to exercise gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love towards one another. And so from the nuclear family, Paul turns to slave-master relationships because slaves were part of the first century household. And Paul would spend more time on this issue here in Colossians because Onesimus, who was the slave of Philemon, was the one, one of the people who delivered the letter to Colossae. Now, before you condemn Paul as being complicit in the institution of slavery, First, please note that the kind of slavery practiced in first century Greco-Roman culture was very different from the race-based slavery practiced in the 17th and 18th century. The late Tim Keller would point out, in the first century Roman Empire, when the New Testament was written, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves, were made the, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not usually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves out. Most important of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope to be manumitted or set free within 10 or 15 years, or by their late 30s at the latest. In fact, some free people would actually sell themselves into slavery 
sometimes to get out of debt. Moreover, Paul's instructions subvert the status quo and lay the groundwork for the abolition of slavery in the future. And we see this as he addresses slaves directly. And in doing that, he is acknowledging the dignity and worth of slaves as morally responsible human beings. The mere fact that Paul addresses them directly is radically different from the thinking of many Greek and Roman writers who thought of slaves as mere tools or instruments. You don't talk to your tools. Well, some do, but <laughs> there's a different reason for that. <laughs> Paul also would put slaves on the same level as their masters by pointing to God as the impartial judge of all people in verse 25. Notice he says, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. And it's the same, there's a leveling effect here because he refers to Jesus as the master of the slave owner, and in verse 24, the master of the slave. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. So Paul, in doing this, is transforming the identity of all slaves. He has already described them in chapter 3, verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. In chapter 4, verse 9, you will see that he refers to Onesimus, the slave, as our faithful and beloved brother. He is recognizing him as a, an equal member of the family of God. And there's more. In those days, a person's status was dependent not on his achievements, but on the status of his master or benefactor. And so when Paul defines them as belonging to Christ, he is transforming their status significantly. Because Christ, according to chapter 1, verse 15 to 23, is the preeminent Lord of the universe. And so if the slave is, is the servant of the sovereign supreme Lord of the universe, then his status has been radically transformed. He's not just serving an earthly master, he is serving Jesus. And that's why the instruction to slaves climaxes in verse 24. In the phrase, you are serving the Lord Christ. That's actually a mistranslation. This is actually an imperative. It's a command. Serve the Lord Christ. And this is how this command applies to you and me. See, we, we are not slaves at this time. We're not slaves to our companies, hopefully not. We are employees. Nonetheless, Christ is our master. Because Christ has redeemed us, we are his slaves. We are his bond servants. We are privileged to belong to him because he has redeemed us. 
And so he defines our identity. Not our salary, not our job title, not our resume. And our essential identity as servants of Christ means that all honest work is honorable as long as it is done for Christ. So whatever it is you're called to do, homemaker, garbage disposal clerk, whatever, it is honorable as long as it is done for Jesus Christ. As Paul Tripp would say, work is not about applying your abilities to achieve the life you have always dreamed of. Such an approach to work is scarily self-focused. Awe of God teaches you that work is the regular place where God calls you to be a good steward of the gifts, opportunities, and abilities He has given you. Since God has given you these gifts, you need to exercise them in submission to His will and for the sake of his glory. And that's why Paul in verse 22 would say, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. With sincerity of heart, with a whole heart, out of reverence for Jesus Christ. Regardless of our working conditions, Let's understand that our Savior who loves us and gave himself for us put us where we are right now in order to serve his purposes. And so it's not about the paycheck. It's not about the status. It's not about the benefits. We work wholeheartedly out of the fear of the Lord. And no, this is not because I'm afraid God is going to get me. Sinclair Ferguson describes the fear of the Lord this way. It is a heartfelt love for him because of who he is and what he has done. A sense of being in his majestic presence. See, we're not people who, 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 are, who serve out of eye service because we are in the presence of God and that's him we serve. It is a thrilling awareness that we have this greatest of all privileges mingled with a realization that now the only thing that really matters is his opinion. To have the assurance of a smile is everything. To feel that he frowns on what we do is desolation. To fear God is to be sensitive to both his greatness and his graciousness. It is to know him and love him wholeheartedly and unreservedly. To fear God, to trust God, to love God, and to know God. These are really one and the same thing. And brothers and sisters, this is the attitude that frees us from the temptation to work hard only when there's a deadline to beat or when we're being watched. That's eye service. Working out of love for Christ frees us from the desire to curry favor from our bosses and be people pleasers. And that's a great thing because living to meet expectations of other people is a soul-crushing, paralyzing burden. You ever try that? I mean, you can't ever satisfy people, can you? And yet, all, we are always tempted to do that. But here's the hope of the gospel. Jesus is the only boss who will not drive you into the ground 
the only audience that does not need your best performance in order to be satisfied with you. Why is this? Because his work for you is finished. And you see, that's why we serve out of awe for Jesus Christ. Because his glory and grace deserve our service. And as if that were not enough, God even promises an inheritance we do not deserve as a reward for our service. Look at verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And again, it was a tremendous promise in that context because slaves could not inherit anything from their masters. And yet they are promised an inheritance. And it's a wonderful promise for you and me to this day that challenges and encourages us to pursue excellence joyfully. We give our all because we are God's servants accomplishing His good purposes for the world through our work. And He will reward us. At the same time, work will not consume us. Because for some people, oh my goodness, I am serving the purposes of God. It's all on me. No, it's not all on you. We don't bear the burden of achieving success. As Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 7, I planted, Apollos watered, God gave the increase. God is responsible for the results. And so serving Christ frees us to do what is right and pleasing to Him regardless of immediate results. And that's why Paul, in this text, points us to eternity. Look at verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. We give account to God for our actions. And knowing that our God is righteous and just gives us ample reason to do what is right and pleasing to Him, not just what is popular and easy. And that's the reality that Paul applied to believers who own slaves. Verse one, chapter 4, verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. God is their heavenly master, so they had to treat their slaves with righteousness and justice. Now in our day, we apply Paul's words to anyone who has oversight over someone else. Because we have a heavenly master who holds us accountable, we must use our authority to benefit the people we supervise. So in my case, I supervise our church staff. I am responsible to God to ensure that they do their jobs well and that they are treated properly. They're not exploited by the church, they're not overworked, and they're properly compensated and appreciated for their service to the church. And realize this, our staff serves the church. Who's the church? All of us, right? And so, Let's understand, we all share the responsibility of making the church a healthy place in which to work and serve. Now, mind you, I'm not trying to shame the deacons here. 
deacons and elders are all on board with what I'm going to say. Our finance committee and our deacons are working really hard to ensure we have a good working environment and staff salaries are commensurate to their duties and sufficient to their daily needs. In fact, one of the most wonderful things I heard from the finance committee last year when we were discussing budget was, we gotta make sure we give our staff a cost of living increase <laughs> to help them deal with prices. But here's the deal. For our deacons to follow through with their commitment to care for the staff financially, we all need to give generously. And I'm not saying this because you've fallen short. I thank the Lord that you have been stepping up to meet our financial targets in these difficult times. Let me remind you, we started our fiscal year asking for an 11% increase in our givings. By the grace of God, we have met and exceeded that. And in fact, just the mere fact that you have, that we have raised 10745 and change for missions is a testament to the church's generosity. And I praise God for that. This is the gospel bearing fruit in our lives. And I trust that we would keep giving generously and joyfully to support the staff and the operations of the church. Because our church is growing. In the, um, if, you, if you saw the agenda outside, we're receiving nine people into the membership. So pretty soon we're going to need another, another pastor because I'm the only full-time pastor on board. And we need another pastor to help us continue to grow. And yes, it's hard. It's, we don't know how it's going to happen. But God is challenging us to rely on him so that our church would continue to be a place where our staff are cared for properly. And at the heart of this, we want to model the shalom that Christ will bring about by pointing to the beauty of the new creation in the way we treat our employees. We please our master who loves us and promises us an inheritance beyond our wildest dreams. See, such is the grace of God that he promises us more than anything this world could offer. When you think about it, what is our reward? Well, given that the Lord Jesus Christ gave himself for us, he gives us his spirit, and the promise is that we will be forever with the Lord in his presence. I hope you realize that God is promising us nothing less than himself as our inheritance. Can you imagine that? God himself is the reward that he gives out of his lavish grace. And we've already begun to receive this inheritance because Christ gave himself for us. In fact, that's why we can claim God as our inheritance. It's an inheritance that Jesus obtained for us by his sacrificial death and resurrection. 
And His Spirit dwells with us. We are united with Christ. And the Spirit is transforming us into the image of Christ so that we could display the beauty of Christ in community. And so, brothers and sisters, in light of this awesome reality that God is our inheritance, I hope and pray that everything we do will be an exclamation of grateful praise offered in worship to our sovereign Savior and Lord. Let's give ourselves to pleasing Him in our homes, our workplaces, in the church, in every area of life. And when we stand before our Lord, we have this hope that he, we will receive His commendation. Well done, good and faithful servant. It's not even because we've done enough or done everything that we were supposed to. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant, because Jesus is more than enough. His work for us is finished. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for promising yourself to us. And in fact, we already enjoy a measure of this. We are astounded at the reality of your love for us, that you have considered us your inheritance and that you, you are at work in us by your Spirit to make us truly an inheritance fit for the King of kings and Lord of lords. But on the flip side of it, we live in this awesome privilege of being your people and having you as our God and of forever being in your presence so that you are our treasure, our reward. Forgive us for so many times we, we forget. We forget that you have given us Christ and in Christ we have everything. And so we look for other things. We, we seek satisfaction and, and security in everything but our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in the words of Jeremiah, we hew out for ourselves broken cisterns that hold no water when you are the fountain of living waters. Oh Lord, help us to see yet again the preciousness of Christ to recognize that he is the pearl of great price, the treasure who deserves our utmost love and loyalty, and that he is ours already, though we do not yet experience the full benefit of belonging to him. But we thank you that there is a day coming when Christ returns and we will forever be with the Lord. Father, may this glorious hope fuel our passion, fuel our service, fuel our delight in you so that everything we do would be a living expression that says, thank you.
May we be truly living doxologies to the glory and praise of our glorious Savior. This we pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.